the Intersection Education Podcast. Schools are the place where different institutions, services, and societal influences meet. In other words, they're at the intersection of children's lives. In the Intersection Education Podcast, we speak with insiders and outsiders of the education world to try to gain new insight and improve our schools. Hello, and welcome to the Intersection Education Podcast. I'm your host, Corey Haley. Today we'll hear from Shala Piper. Shala is our first guest who's not a certified teacher. Rather, she's a scientist who works with schools to promote nature-based play and learning. Although she doesn't have a B.Ed. behind her name, that does not mean she is a stranger to the world of education. From 2007 to 2012, she was the Director of Discovery, a Science, Technology, Engineering, and Math, or STEM, outreach program of the University of Alberta's Faculty of Engineering. In that time, she initiated and implemented new programs around STEM education. Her passion is really teaching, and she approaches all projects from an educational lens. This makes her especially effective when working with schools to bring about better programming and structures that will enhance play and learning. Shala is a certified trainer of the High Five Principles of Healthy Child Development and has directed and instructed summer camps for family and community support services, 4-H, ringette camps, discovery, as we mentioned, and even Explore Francais French nature camps, which we hear more about in this interview. Essentially, Shala is an expert on nature-based play for students. She has not only the science and research background on this subject, but she also has the lived experience of guiding learning in the outdoors. She talks about strategies that each school can use to make better learning and healthier students. If you like this episode, please connect with Intersection Education on our website, which is intersectioneducation.com, on Twitter, at Intersection Ed, and we're even on Facebook. It also helps us out when you rate and leave a review on iTunes. Here's my conversation with Shala Piper. Hi, Shala. Thanks for coming in and agreeing to speak to me today. Thanks so much for having me, Corey. Awesome. Let's, uh, you know, one of the reasons that I really want to talk to you about is this nature-based play. That's one of the big things I want. And I've heard that you've been doing French nature camps for a while. Tell me about those French nature camps and how they started. Well, they started with an idea. My mom had a great idea that... The students learning French in Lacombe had no way to use their French in a day-to-day environment, in a fun learning environment. So when I was 16, my sister and I and my mom helped us. We basically started with my youngest sister's kindergarten class as our first set of campers. And now I'm still doing that with my own kids and some of their friends from school. And I'll be at the Pioneer Museum in Stony Plain this summer. Wow. So... uh Maybe we won't put exactly how many years ago that was, but I would say that's maybe over 15 and less than 30 years ago. <laughs> yes, thank you. It is less than 30 years. <laughs> awesome. Well, let's let's get into that. Maybe tell me a bit more about your background in nature play and how you became interested in outdoor play for children. Was it only the nature camps or was there more to it? Yeah, I mean, it started in the usual way with my parents, both being great mentors and being naturalists themselves. And so we went on 
big adventures and small adventures in our backyard. We did backcountry camping off of canoes and, uh, and with hiking and even did some hunting. And then um, starting to share that love of nature with other campers through the nature camps. And then uh, when I was the director of science camps at the U of A, I became a mentor for those kinds of programs and started to work with other scientists and help them to share their research and share their passions also. And, uh, and then when my kids started to play themselves, I really always took great pleasure in kind of setting up provocations for them. I mean, at the time I didn't call them provocations, but I've, I've loved just watching what kids do and how amazingly creative and curious and competent they are when you put them in those situations and wanted to help more of that happen at school, especially when my own kids started going to school. And with my background being in STEM outreach and school reform, and then this new adventure that I'm on with science communication and knowledge translation, it sort of came together nicely, and uh, I'm calling it nature at school. But um, that's kind of a combination of helping more nature play and more research translation. So getting all of this great research around the benefits of nature play into the hands of people that can use it. Let's talk about some of those benefits of nature play. I think that that's one of the big things or big barriers that the people are unaware of. So what does the research tell us that the benefit, um, what kind of benefits do students get from spending a part of their day outdoors during a school day? So many, it's hard to know where to start really. Research shows that students are more motivated and they feel a greater sense of achievement when they learn outdoors. Nature provides these awesome concrete examples for all the sort of abstract concepts that we're trying to teach. We also can help students build a connection to nature and a connection to their community and land. And that builds this sense of belonging that's really important for you know their positive mental health and being good stewards of the places they live. But also from an immune system perspective, they're having decreased exposure to communicable diseases. They're getting more sunlight. Um, they'll even sleep better when they're outside during the day. And then from sort of a longer term perspective, we know the kids move more, sit less, and play longer when they're outdoors. So we're helping them get the activity that they need throughout the day. Um, and then even more of those positive mental health benefits. And with the really epidemic that we're facing around both obesity and now anxiety also in young PD in young Canadians. I think those last two points are, are maybe the most important, even though from an education point of view, the increased academic achievement is, you know, really, really key too. So, yeah. so many benefits. I'd say that that's probably not only a Canadian phenomenon, um, increasing obesity and, and mental health issues, but yeah, I think that's universal. So, Let's talk about a particular teacher. Let's say um, a teacher comes to you and they were worried about taking their, their students outside because they thought it was going to negatively affect academic achievement. This whole idea that they need to be in school, they need to be doing work with a paper and a pen at the desks. Um, how would you respond to that or what arguments would you make to, to try and convince that person to take their students outside? Well, obviously, you know, we don't have kids for that many instructional hours. And so with that being such a common concern, there's luckily lots of, of evidence now, lots of research going out to figure out exactly how these outdoor experiences and 
And even at the kindergarten level, the nature play experiences are helping kids' academic achievement. And we're really seeing across the board, whether it's kind of an anecdotal case study or whether it's more of a designed, controlled study, both those types of research are showing increased academic achievement, not just in science, which of course you would sort of expect, but other subjects as well. And, you know, one of the contributors looks like it might be reduced number of discipline issues, and then also a better ability to focus when students come back indoors. So the time they spend outdoors, they're more motivated, and you spend less time trying to classroom manage and all of those things. And then also when you do go back in, then they have renewed focus. Right. I know that one of the roles that you play is working with schools to to help them promote getting kids outside, um, this whole program of nature at school. When you're starting to work with a school, what are some of the first steps that a school could take or what, what steps do you suggest that they take to increase the amount of time that students spend outside? Well, I think the first thing they could do would be to assess their schoolyard and also talk to students and staff about what's working and what isn't. So do students look forward to outdoor recess? Um, what are staff doing already for outdoor learning? And who among your staff and your parent body might be a champion to get some of these projects going? Um, if you're going outside and you're talking about increasing outdoor recess or reducing the number of days that you come inside because it's raining or it's too cold, then I think before you start looking at those practice changes, you want to make sure you have enough destinations on your schoolyard, you have enough shade in the summertime, you have a lot of different types of play so that the kids that sort of end up marginalized on conventional playgrounds are really engaged in many forms of outdoor play. Is, are there any tools that you use when you're doing those playground assessments? I, I, I know you talked about what, that's one of the first things you would do. Any resources that people could go to just as like a, a quick checklist or, or even point them in the right direction? Yeah, there's a lot of research by Beverly Dietz, and she's created an outdoor play assessment tool. It's, a, it's got a long name about creating outdoor play spaces with a sense of wonder. Um, that's not available online, but you can take a course or you can contact someone that could come and do that assessment for you. And then also we've developed an audit for the Robin Moore's principles of nature, play and learning spaces. And his, his PDF, it's, it should be a book, but it's like a 75 page PDF available online. Mm -hmm. Robin Moore's nature, play and learning spaces. So that's a good guide too. You bet. Any any other places, maybe other websites or books or places um, that you send people who are looking to get into the nature play or maybe even something about the benefits uh, to students? Yeah, I can recommend for the cognitive benefits of getting outside and when, you know, you're kind of trying to build momentum, explain the why, get people on board – the book called Your Brain on Nature by Selhub and Logan is really great for explaining all the cognitive benefits. And then people are going to see the benefits to students and to staff as well. And there's also some great websites. Um, you could start by Googling the Nature Kids Institute and the Natural Start Alliance. And there's also an awesome tool. This one's more for parents, but for teachers too, outsideplay.ca. And it's actually an online course, sort of a webinar that you can work through to understand risky play and the importance of risk in play. And then another one that's very focused on teachers called thinkingoutside.ca. Those are some teachers in the Ottawa School Board that 
have a great website. That's great. You've worked with some some schools now, and what I like too is you're you've done them over a period of time. So not only do you have the initial kind of what your ideas were, but you've been able to revisit some of those programs. What are some of the main lessons that you've learned with that idea of revisiting some of the initial projects that you made? And so how how is kind of your thinking or the suggestions that you've make that you make to schools? How have they shifted over time seeing that kind of longitudinal study? Well, I think one thing that sometimes schools will learn after their first attempt is to really keep it focused on play value and not beautification projects in the schoolyard and then the right kind of maintenance. So sometimes a green schoolyard can become kind of unkept and overgrown and then it has to all get pulled out or it becomes too maintained just from a volunteer group that doesn't quite understand the value of naturalized areas or or things like that. So it's kind of hard to sum it up in terms of the ways of kind of keeping the play value and the simplicity there so that it's easy to maintain over time. But, but definitely thinking about that. And then what I've learned from working with schools in general, whether it was with the STEM outreach programs or now with nature play and outdoor learning is um, just to take it slow and let things happen naturally. So, and, and really to happen differently at each school you know, if you, this expression goes, if you want to go fast, go alone, to go far, go together. And I think letting a school committee kind of naturally form, or maybe it's going to be um, some parents that are really keen, but just not trying to fit schools into one particular model, but making your model fit every school. And even considering just starting with your kindergartners, because really I think that's the most important grade for reform right now around play-based learning and, and more outdoor play. And then if you targeted those kindergarten kindergartners, you sort of would just move up with that cohort in terms of parent education and kids being keen and having the skills of, of play. And, and that's what St. Gregory's School in Hinton did. And the change just grew up through the school with that first set of kindergarten kids and then other teachers caught on. And I think that school will always, it's just, it will be like that forever. It's really, really long-term sustainable program. Let's say we gave you a whole bunch of money and you are going to create the perfect outdoor space, um, at a school or in a community, maybe maybe a little bit of both. Um, we know that school grounds often become community use grounds. Again, maximizing student play, maximizing student learning, all the all the benefits that you you talked about with that nature at school. What would that outdoor space look like? It would definitely have a big hill or several big hills for sliding in winter because that's where we live, right? So we need to think about all those winter months and how we're going to use that space. It would have lots of shade for the intense sun that we get in Alberta. Sometimes we wait around, wait around for this good heat to finally come and then all the kids are huddled up next to the school in the little bit of shade that the wall of the school provides. So shade and slope, all those variety of surfaces are really important. Um, I think... A combination. So St. Gregory's School in Hinton, again, they have this beautiful outdoor classroom. Just amazing. It really creates a sense of wonder. You know, it's full of challenge and loose parts. And it's very open to the design of the students. 
And then they have a nature nearby location. They have this beaver boardwalk that they visit regularly throughout all the seasons. So they can have a space that they can play in really, you know, rough and tumble ways and they don't hurt any wildflowers. They're not impacting, you know, a watershed. And then they can walk to a nature nearby location and have more of a sense of awe for that space to kind of slow down and observe seasonal change and get to know that place really, really well so they feel a connection to it. So I think those are two really important ingredients. This this challenging loose parts place that you can rough and tumble in and then some really natural environment too that you can visit regularly. So now <laughs> let's talk about that's the, that's the dream. Uh, what do you think the trends are in outdoor spaces? Now thinking of back to the norm. So let's kind of go, where are school grounds? What, what might they look like or what, how might they be different in 20 years than now um, at the normal school, at the average school? Well, I think... I think that's actually something really important to think about because you don't want to put in a million dollar playground equipment and then be wanting to rip out that same equipment in five years. Um, I hope that the school grounds in 20 years will have many, many destinations. So they'll be more inclusive because students will play in different ways for different students and no one will be marginalized to the outside of the playground while still having a lot of great spaces for that sort of gross motor physical play. Um, I hope they'll also be more open to student design. So more open-ended types of play, more novel things where this day it looks like this and next month we're going to change it up a little bit and, and move some logs around or tie some pallets together. And um, I think another trend might be using materials and themes that honor our local landscape. So, you know, a big blue elephant in a playground in Spruce Grove is is not relevant to students' experience. It doesn't really connect them to their real outdoor world. And there's a group called Beanstalk Playgrounds, and that's a huge part of what they do is to use materials that are local to really honor that landscape and then make kids feel a connection to place. So I'd kind of like to see that sort of trend happen. We've talked a lot about outdoor spaces, but we know that nature at school isn't only about outdoor spaces. There are some ways that we can bring some of that nature idea inside. Any recommendations for schools who want to continue that idea of nature at school inside of their schools? Yeah, I think the first one that's so easy is that when you do go outside, kids are naturally hunters and gatherers. And while we need to respect the spaces that we're visiting, if there's 20 of them, it's okay to take one. That's the National Wildlife Federation's rule, the one in 20 rule. And then when you do collect something, have a space to show off that discovery in your class. So start to have just a table where you can bring what you find back in. And if it's ice, you let it melt and, you know, do some science experiment with it. If it's a beautiful piece of lichen, you know, you can just enjoy that. And, and then debrief with the class when you are in that space um, all together, wherever we can enjoy the discoveries of, um, of your, your nature walk. And then maybe Another easy thing and very good for our health is to have more plants indoors. So there's a school in Edmonton that's been putting carbon dioxide monitors in their classrooms and finding that 
by about 1 p.m. The parts per million of carbon dioxide is so high. It's above what starts to affect our mental acuity and and wakefulness. So it's it's no wonder that people want a coffee break at 1, 1.30 and the kids start to feel a little sluggish. So when we have schools with windows that don't open or in the wintertime when there's, you know, it's not feasible to really air out schools, then we can start putting some of those plants indoors and improve the air quality too. Very cool. That's very interesting. I did not know that about the carbon dioxide. Let's move into um, education a bit more generally. Um, I'd like to ask this question to, to everyone that I talk to. Is there something about education that you believe is true that most people or, or a large percentage of people would disagree with you about? Hmm. Well, I think, I think failure or taking risks, I guess, a better way of saying it, is a really key part of learning. And while people might agree in principle with that statement, they, they understand <laughs> that failures are learning. I, I see a lot of education that seems to disagree with that in practice. So um, what I'm not saying that we should just challenge kids without first giving them some tools in their toolbox. I really also believe in that, that, you know, whether I'm designing engineering curriculum or teaching kids how to find insects, they should, you know, first teach them some basic skills and then let them show you how competent they are. So that's certainly important to build a foundation of, of skills. But then, um, you know, whether kids are playing at recess or they're making a hand turkey, I love to see kids trying new things, feeling comfortable taking risks. And in the end, maybe they're going to do something that even they didn't think they were capable of, or maybe making a hand turkey like no one else's. <laughs> um, my son's super creative and artistic, and we did lots of very free projects at home. And And then he went to school, and there would be like 24 hand turkeys that all looked the same, and then Kieran's hand turkey there just like sticking out like a sore thumb. And and so now that's kind of my pet peeve when I go down a hallway in a school and I see like 25 identical hand turkeys, and I'm just like, what's the point of this activity, yeah. right? So, <laughs> yeah. I, I wonder if you have because you, you brought up the the idea of risk, and and that's another big thing that that we hear teachers say. You know, I want to get into nature, but you know, the liability and the insurance. Or, do you have any lived experience or any any? kind of advice that you would give to someone who's a bit worried about that, that liability issue or the insurance issues about risk? Yeah. Well, I think in our school division anyway, sometimes there are ideas about what they're not covered for that actually aren't, aren't true at the division level. So look into that first and you might be surprised to know that you are allowed to start a fire at your school, um, in a controlled fire pit, obviously, and, and with proper precautions, but, um, sometimes that, that can kind of spread without the actual, um, answer ever being looked into. So that's a good idea. And, and sometimes we need to consider those things like items on our to-do list, but not barriers to mean that we can't do it. Uh, another thing that I always do is to do a risk benefit analysis or assessment of what I'm doing. So, some risks for kids don't really present a lot of benefit. There's some hazards that as adults, we do need to step in and protect them from. Traffic is one of them. Thin ice is another one. So we don't ever want to create habits that um, might put them in danger another time. And then there's other risks like climbing trees that really have a lot of benefits for kids and learning how to use their bodies in different positions 
to get across different types of services. So if there is no benefit to that risk, if it's just a hazard, then let's avoid it and even be really open with kids about talking about, you can't see what's under that ice, so don't go on it now or ever, those sorts of things. Um, but then if there's a benefit to that risk, like running, huge benefits for kids running at high speed along long surfaces. And so, you know, I've heard, I was even, I was, uh, sometimes I do as a contractor work for the Tri-Leisure Center. So the class is there specifically for physical literacy. That's the whole idea of this program. And I still heard the teacher saying, don't run, stop running. <laughs> Um, you know, so kind of counterproductive, I guess. And, and the risk of running on grass is, you know, compared to the benefit of, of kids never running on grass, it's not, uh, not something we should avoid. Yeah. We're going to get into what I like to call the lightning round. So a bit of a shorter answer, um, looking for a quick hitter. Um, what's your favorite, uh, education in the large sense, uh, education related app or website? Hmm, can I pick two if I say them really fast? You bet. Okay, Alberta Council for Environmental Education and the University of Colorado. Okay. Even when I was doing STEM, every time I looked for something, it seemed like I ended up at the University of Colorado's website again, and they have just fantastic resources for a broad range of things. And that's a particular website around STEM education, or is it just... Yeah, yeah. it is more more focused on STEM education. Okay, so yeah, I'm sure if we Google University of Colorado and then STEM education, it'll come up great. Mm -hmm. What's a book that you quote or refer to or that you have marked up um, quite often or the most? The most actually is not to do with nature play, but it's called Made to Stick, and it's a great book. More around knowledge translation and communication but then the nature play one that i love the most right now is called how to raise a child a wild child by scott sampson what's one thing that you do every day or most days that keeps you healthy and well i usually cuddle my kids at bedtime which keeps me healthy finally what's an organization or a person that's inspiring you right now I still really look to my longtime role model, Jennifer Flanagan, the CEO of Actua. She's always been my role model. And whenever I try and learn something new, I'm like, okay, I want to be on Instagram. Well, how's Jennifer doing Instagram? <laughs> I'll kind of learn from her. So yeah, she's my role model. Very cool. Let's talk a little bit about the future. What's, uh, what's next? What are some of the big projects that you have um, either planned or that you hope to, to kind of start in, in the coming years? Well, I'm really excited for tomorrow's kind of unveiling of the new outdoor classroom at Meridian Heights School. We're going to have uh, some outdoor games and a marshmallow roast at the new fire pit that's surrounded by boulders and apple trees. And some more plantings in the fall will come there. And that's where my kids go to school. So I love to see that schoolyard changing all the time. And I'm looking forward to the, the nature camps this summer, the French nature camps. That'll be really good. And then I hope this, this school year to get a program going where more schools are revisiting their nature nearby location, like about three times a year. Mm -hmm. So connecting with one natural area and maybe the grade five sixes will go over and over again. Oh, three times a year to that same spot. Very cool. 
let's say people want a little bit more information or want to connect with you. What are the best ways that they can uh, can interact with you or get a hold of you? Probably just by email. Our company is Fuse Consulting, so my email is shala s h e l a g h at fuse with an s consulting dot c a. Excellent. Thanks again so much. Uh, I really appreciate you taking some time to speak with us today. Thank you, Corey. That's it for my conversation with Shala Piper. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back soon with our next episode.